What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and right now, out in Cupertino, California, Apple's big annual product launch event is just getting started. One of our guests calls it the most high-stakes event for the company, believe it or not, in years. And because of Apple's size, that makes this a high-stakes event for the market as a whole. Shares are down 1.4% around session lows right now, 176 uh, per share. And we'll have a front-row seat to all the action. Steve Kovac is live in Cupertino and will bring us all the major headlines this hour as we get them. We'll also get instant reaction and analysis from tech investor Paul Meeks and Boca Capital Partners Kim Forrest. Welcome to all of you. And Steve, kick things off for us. The iPhone. Why did I name the event Wanderlust, by the way? That I don't know, Kelly, but it is just now kicking off. So maybe we'll get a a hint there uh, as to why they're calling it the Wanderlust event. But it is the iPhone event, of course, every September. We're here in Cupertino for that. You see behind me the Steve Jobs Theater. I just heard a bunch of cheers and clapping. I think Tim Cook just took the stage and they hit play on that theater, um, on the video that they have that will show the keynote presentation with all the iPhones. Here's what we're expecting, Kelly. Uh, Four new models, two base models, and then the two pro models where Apple typically puts the most advanced features in there for the cameras, processors, and so forth. And then everyone's going to be talking about this. We've been talking about it last week even, that new plug at the bottom, changing from that lightning connector that you're so used to using for the last decade or more. That's changing over to a new standard version of USB called USB-C. That means if you have an Android buddy and you want to borrow their charger, you'll be able to do that finally. And then look, pricing is another big mystery here. Analysts have been chattering for the last couple of weeks that they think the Pro line is going to get a $100 price increase. Kelly, that means the iPhone Pro would start at 1100 bucks. So we have that. And, and as I understand it, Steve, there might be a lot of um, razzle-dazzle around the cameras because a lot of consumers can't differentiate these products from one another. Um, so maybe the camera with the super cool lens might might help draw them in a little bit. Um, I also think it's interesting to look back at just what's happening with smartphone sales every year. I mean, should, I don't know if Apple's rev, you know, are, are we talking about a, a market that's matured so much that sales are declining? So price hikes are their only option to keep that top line growing? Yeah, and that is what investors are looking for. We saw Apple shares punished uh, just last month when I was out here uh, when they reported their uh, third quarter earnings. We're in the fiscal fourth quarter now. Apple said, look, sales are going to be down again for the fourth quarter in a row. That means a full fiscal year of down sales. And Tim Cook told me himself, smartphone demand has fallen, especially in those most lucrative markets like the U.S., maybe China, Western Europe, Japan, and so forth. So if they do raise prices on this phone, they're going to have to really make a big sales pitch as to why it's worth that higher price point, Kelly. Yeah, exactly. Steve, we'll check back in with you shortly as the uh, event gets in full swing. How much is at stake for Apple in the whole tech landscape here? Let's bring in Kim Forrest, Boca Capital Partners CIO, and Paul Meeks, Independent Solutions Wealth Management Portfolio Manager. So, Kim, you think this is a pretty high-stakes event, don't you? Why? Sure. Well, I think the uh, reporter Steve called it out Four, count them, four quarters of lower revenue. And that is not a good thing 
for a market leader and certainly the largest market cap stock in the S&P 500. It's a problem. So they have to make a case. And the panda in the room, not the elephant in the room, <laughs> is China. And there might be decreasing sales from China. Is how are they going to make up those lost sales and drive innovation to make us want some more Apple to spend on? Right, exactly. Paul, we haven't even kind of talked about China as a, as a risk going forward here. Already, the company's coming off its third straight quarter of negative year-on-year -year revenue growth, and that's getting garnering comparisons with, yes, IBM. Yeah, I'm worried about uh, Apple. You know, right now it trades for about three or four times a reasonable long-term growth rate for either revenue or earnings per share. You know, I think going forward, maybe a 5% grower on the top line, maybe a 10% grower on the bottom line, only through stock buybacks. In the meantime, you have a stock that's trading at uh, 30 times. So among the FANGs and any of the other mega cap tech stocks, I would say I own it because if you're a tech investor, you have to trade around a core position in case you're wrong. But I would say adamantly that it's the least favorite among the fangs, the least favorite among my large cap tech holdings. You know, we talk about and, and Apple had 25 billion shares outstanding a decade ago and only 15 billion shares outstanding today, Paul. So they are absolutely doing a lot of financial engineering here. But is that a reason not to love it? Well, the nice thing about Apple is it has uh, explosive free cash flow. But there's been no company in the history of the planet that has generated this kind of cash flow, well over $1 billion per week. Wow. However, we also have no growth. And at uh, some point, you have to reaccelerate the growth. So I concur with our other guests that they have to show us something. I don't think they're going to show us anything today. But over time, they're going to have to show us where does the growth accelerator come from? I actually think that they should probably change their culture which has been wrapped around, it's no good unless it's built here, and consider making an acquisition hmm. and actually a quite large acquisition. Now, they have a strong balance sheet. They could easily do it. But in the past, they've been hesitant to do so, and I think that they have to do something bold. So when you say something bold, and, and we're looking at Tim Cook, you know, we say taking the stage, but he, I think we're showing a video of him standing in the grass. I don't know. We'll get to Steve in a second, Paul. But when you say you want Apple to do something bold and not be so obsessed with products that were built in Cupertino, for instance, what kind of acquisition? Are you talking about a product acquisition? Obviously, they've a bunch of media acquisitions have been floated for them over the years. Yes, yeah, so over time, they've probably considered, because it's been in the media, acquiring Tesla when it was down and out, that probably would have been a pretty big move. And they could have also done Netflix, probably should have. I think going forward, among the large cap tech names, they've been the most silent on artificial intelligence. And if indeed that is gonna be a mega tech trend, if they can't do it internally, or they can't exploit it enough internally, that is where I would go with a large deal. Who is that acquiree in AI right now? I mean, do they buy NVIDIA, right? Do they, do they look at, you know, a software play? I don't know if OpenAI is a possibility. That's a very good point. OpenAI definitely is not a possibility because, of course, it's um, bankrolled by Microsoft. And I don't think uh, NVIDIA would be either, right? It, the manufacturer of semiconductors, even though NVIDIA is a fabulous semiconductor company, probably doesn't jive with Apple. I really don't know what it's going to be but they somehow have to better embrace that theme. 
Yeah, well, maybe because that's probably your best opportunity for accelerated growth and they badly need it. Yeah, it sounds like they might not know either. Uh, Kim, quick comment. I disagree. I think this feels a lot like Microsoft when everybody thought it should be broken up into operating system and other stuff, you know, to show the growth of the other stuff like mm -hmm. Office. And um, they really have demonstrated that that was not the right thing to do or bring in an outsider. That was also Wall Street's favorite idea. I think Apple is an innovation company. I It is not a favorite stock, but I am going to give it credit that they have innovators, and I want to see them innovate their way out of this problem and earn that multiple. Wow. Okay, this is going to be good, having the two of you together all hour. We've got a lot of other stocks to get to as well. Um, so let's start with another tech giant in the news today while we wait for more headlines out of Apple. And while they're busy refreshing their product line, Google is in court as the U.S. takes on the company's search dominance in the biggest antitrust trial in two decades, speaking of Microsoft. And it could be years until we know for sure what the outcome is. Eamon Javers is outside of the courthouse with the latest. Hi, Eamon. Hey there, Kelly. This is a bench trial today, which means there's no jury in the courtroom. So attorneys representing the DOJ, a group of state attorneys general, and Google all made their case directly to Dr Judge Amit Mehta this morning. He's also been handling years of pretrial hearings in this case. Lawyers for the Department of Justice arrived here this morning to present their case, alleging that Google got to its 90% market share by breaking the law and engaging in anti-competitive practices. The DOJ is alleging here that Google effectively purchased that market share by signing billions of dollars worth of revenue sharing agreements, paying the likes of Apple, as you were just talking about, for default positioning on their devices. Now, Google attorney Kent Walker arrived at the courthouse today uh, in support of Google. Its outside attorney, John Schmidtlin, argued that the government is wrong about how Google built its dominance and wrong about who its competitors actually are. Schmidtlin is arguing that the competitive pressures that Google faces today have never been more varied. His point is that people looking to shop, conduct searches on Wayfair, Amazon, Walmart, a whole host of other uh, competitors to Google. Now, Judge Mehta has not been shy about interrupting so far with questions. At one point earlier, he asked Google's attorney how he would define the competitors in a situation where the product itself, search, is free to consumers. So this is just the first day of what is expected to be a months-long process with the final determination coming sometime, Kelly, in 2024. We don't know exactly when. Exactly. Eamon, uh, well, that's exactly right, that we don't know exactly when. It's going to take some time. Our right. Eamon Javers reporting, Eamon, we really appreciate it. Paul, I'll turn back to you, and with the remaining few minutes for now, I'll give you the choice. You can have Google, you can have Oracle, you can have Adobe ahead of Thursday. Thursday, you know, you've already made your feelings on Apple clear. Which of the other tech giants do you feel more comfortable uh, having exposure to at this point? Do you think this Google trial is a big deal? I think that Google will prevail. However, I think that they may have to change their business practices, particularly their deals with hardware suppliers, including Apple. As far as my view on tech, I don't know if I want to jump into tech right now because it's gone uh, fairly negative ever since we stepped into the month of August. I want to see it settle. And then, believe it or not, when I come back, and I will, my favorite idea is still NVIDIA. It is still NVIDIA. Wow. I mean, look, 30 times forward earnings. Uh, what about Oracle's trading action today? What, why not Adobe? I mean, there's, these are some other names, especially Adobe, that people hit out in for years. 
Yeah, I like Adobe uh, long term. I think Oracle is probably a buy today down nine or 10 percent. I think their problems are transitory, not secular. I think they're doing the right things with AI and they will be one of those players. The thing I like about NVIDIA is we have uh, about a 40 times PE next year. Yeah, it's expensive. It might be egregiously expensive, but every time they turn around and report their results, they're upsiding to the tune of 50, 60 percent. It's almost unprecedented. So unless you think that all of a sudden there is going to be a stoppage in training large language models for AI, NVIDIA should have a couple of good years ahead of it. So on a PEG PE to growth rate basis, it's reasonable. On a PE to growth rate basis, Apple is unreasonable. Real quickly, NVIDIA at 451 today, you sound like you're still waiting for the trading sort of behavior to look a little bit better. Would you recommend it as a buy here or what price level are you waiting for? I'm not looking necessarily at a price level because it's hard to do that when you've had a stock that's uh, so quickly tripled. But what I'm looking for is a stabilization for a couple of sessions, maybe even a couple of weeks in price. Maybe it holds why other tech stocks go down. Maybe the volume dries up a little bit so it looks like the sell-off is exhausted. And then, yes, I want to re-up on NVIDIA. All right. And Kim, same question to you. And I'll throw NVIDIA into the mix. You can have Google. You can have NVIDIA. You can have Oracle. You can have Adobe. I'm, where are you most inclined to go today? Well, I, I'm, I've been loving just semiconductors in general. And NVIDIA is on the bubble. I'm, I'm opposite of Paul today, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. I love software companies. But looking at Oracle, I think their biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. They love to buy um, companies and then port over the, the product to use Oracle's database and thus, you know, kind of get a little leverage and a little more income from that acquisition. However, they are very, very much an enterprise software company, which I love, but it also limits them. And they have... Um, told you this is limited by the amount of acquisitions they've been doing, I don't know, for the past 15 years. Hmm. So Oracle isn't that. NVIDIA, I understand everybody's love of the um, large-scale language model AI, but I think AI is much more than that and is going to play out probably over the next 10 to 15 years. This is just the first hot spot. And I think people are kind of leaving chat GPT um, aside for a while. It was the hot thing, right? And the promise is going to pay out like every other tech trend. And what happens is this, is everybody jumps into one thing thinking this is going to be it. It's going to kill every other tech thing in the world. And then it doesn't come to fruition. I don't know. Think autonomous self-driving cars. And then like five to seven years later, we realized there was a really better use than we originally anticipated. In this case, in autonomous cars, I think it's autonomous long haul trucking because it's actually solving a problem. And then we're like, oh, wow, look at that. That technology really did do what it said it was going to do in the beginning, just not in the way it thought it was. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I like NVIDIA because it is just that one trick pony as of now, not that it can't be. But that's why it's white hot now. 
This is a this is a white hot panel. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, take a break. Come back. We appreciate it. Both Kim and Paul a little bit later this hour. My next guest says if you want to be in tech, he also says skip Apple and the rest of the Magnificent Seven and go smaller instead. In fact, you're looking at one of his top picks and he was just crowned CNBC's top financial advisor. He joins us next with this name and where else he's seeing opportunity right now. Plus, a day after that super bullish call from Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas that sent Tesla shares soaring 10 percent, Needham not sharing the same sentiment. The analyst joins us with why he disagrees with Tesla shares lower by more than 1 percent today. Here's the markets as we head to break. Dow's up 113 points. S&P's down nine. Nasdaq's down 79. Russell's up five. Go figure. The 10-year yield 429. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Ten-year notes just went up for auction a few moments ago as we await CPI data in the morning. Rick Santelli tracking the action out in Chicago for us. How'd it go, Rick? You know, it went pretty well. Uh, we had 35 billion 10-year notes up for auction. Actually, nine-year, 11-month. We're adding to an issue we opened up fresh one month ago. The yield, 4.289%. And what's notable here, Kelly, is that is the highest yield for a 10-year instrument at an auction since November of 2007. The grade, as I said, B as in boy, let's go through it. This is the second leg of a three-leg uh, issuance from the Treasury for a total of $99 billion. This $35 billion tranche, well, it was pretty well bid for. Now, we saw all the metrics at or slightly above 10 auction average. What's really unique here is it priced exactly right on top of the when-issued market, so there was no pricing issues, whether it added or subtracted from the grade. And... Considering that we do have CPI tomorrow, it doesn't surprise me that the range today has been very similar to yesterday. As we hug up towards the high yields of the session, which were just a whisker below 430, we haven't really clicked off 430 yet. I will continue to monitor how investors uh, look to the rest of the afternoon with regard to the fixed income in Treasury markets, because tomorrow is a very important number, especially considering how many Fed officials certainly seem to be wanting to take their foot off the accelerator of rate hikes. Back to you. Rick, some are arguing that maybe the, the high-frequency labor market data matters more at this point. Do you think that's true, that CPI is taking a bit of a backseat? 
Well, I think that may be true because I think there's more and more uh, investors and economists and analysts that are questioning Fed models and some of the Fed assumptions within those Fed models. So, of course, when those things occur, especially in a cycle that's getting to be a bit long in the tooth, well over a year, to look towards other areas to get that final bit of information makes sense to me. Although in the grand scheme of things, I think tomorrow's number is huge. All right, Rick, thank you for now, Rick Santelli. My next guest says 10-year bond yields are peaking and will fall to 3.5% at the end of the year. Joining me now is Michael Schumacher, head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. A nice counterpoint, Michael, to the argument we heard yesterday uh, from Bob Weinstein, and Brian, Bob, Brian Weinstein, I should say, at Morgan Stanley, who thinks that yields uh, could go still much higher from here. Yeah, it's interesting, Kelly. Yields have already gone up a ton. We've seen that. And yet we call it a turning point. So it's the Fed, it's the European Central Bank, Bank of England. All these central banks are either done or very close to done hiking. And when that happens, markets typically rally. That's bond markets. So you typically have yields go down quite a bit pretty quickly. And markets get ahead of that first rate cut. So we do think there's quite a bit of room for yields to fall by year end. His argument was that if the Fed cut rates by a full percentage point, the curve should steepen and the 10-year could still end up yielding more than it does now. That's an interesting argument. I don't buy it. When the Fed eventually does come in to cut, unless something breaks badly, probably goes 50 basis points, maybe it goes a bit more. But when you think about the huge downward pressure a big cut like that would signal, I think people would grab for whatever yield they could get. So 430 today or 4.29 something, whatever it was, that's going to look PG in my terms, pretty good for anybody who's buying bonds given a 100 basis point rate cut. I've also heard, and again, we're dwelling specifically on the longer end of the curve. Everyone kind of seems to agree the short end is, is a nice buy. But I've heard big investors like Stan Druckenmiller say, why shouldn't we see the long end continue to normalize by historical levels? And he's talking about something maybe upwards of 5, 6 or 7 percent. Hmm. That's pretty steamy. And I think you have to ask yourself, from the standpoint of the U.S. government and the government budget deficit, could it really tolerate something like 6, 7 percent on the 10-year? That's a budget record. So from our perspective, we think the answer is no. And also think about all those investors globally who look around and say, oh, wow, these yields are pretty good in the U.S., stand out as being a really good opportunity even after adjusting for inflation. So whether it's foreign investors or U.S. domestics, I think they would really put a stop to that pretty quickly. So in, and how much, um, you know, not to get too wonky about it, but how much do you think what's going on, say, in Japan is driving uh, where 10-year yields go from here? I think it's making people wonder, Kelly, because the Bank of Japan has been a bastion of super easy policy now for decades. The messaging has been a little bit tough to interpret, let's say, over the last couple months. But people are at least getting the hint, hey, maybe the Bank of Japan will actually let rates rise a bit more on the long end. And maybe one fine day, think about a rate hike. If that happened, it would send shutters to the bond market. But at least in our view, we think that's quite a ways off, but it does inject volatility. There's no doubt about that. All right. Maybe a, a buying opportunity. So, you know, you're talking about buying and selling with bonds, so it's a little confusing. But your call is clear, Michael. Uh, your explanation is as well. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Michael Schumacher with Wells Fargo. Back to stocks. My next guest calls this a highly unusual market, but one with plenty of upside still if you know where to look. He's turning to small caps for opportunity from any, anything from tech to energy. And he was just crowned CNBC's number one financial advisor. For more, let's bring in Mason King, principal at Luther King Capital Management. Congratulations. 
So you guys ranked highly on these 10 criteria CNBC used this year. In particular, your number of accounts under management is more than 3,000. You're 44 years in business. You're 25 billion under management. I think that's more than any other firm on the list. We are very fortunate to take that top spot, and thank you very much for uh, inviting us up here to present. And I am honored to be the one representing our firm and our clients, which are, you don't have a firm if you don't have clients, and so we owe a lot to them and uh, the years that they've been with us. Because just guessing by a look at you, I don't think you've been running this firm for all 44 years. No, I, I am just, I am, I am one of many of, <laughs> of, a, of, of a big team that's out there, uh, 93 professionals within the firm. Uh, 63 investment professionals and uh, nearly 1,500 years of cumulative investment uh, experience. Not too shabby. So you're telling us with all of that said right now, and we teased this earlier on in a day with Apple and Google and all these uh, big cap tech names in the headlines. I mean, you are looking a little more idiosyncratic, aren't you? We do. Uh, you know, within our core equity portfolios, we certainly have a place for those mega caps and, um, and they're represented. Apple's a wonderful company. Um, you know, they're having a great day today. And, uh, well, not from a stock trading standpoint, but certainly uh, with their uh, announcement of their new, new products. Uh, and they have a wonderful ecosystem that they've been, been able to build for the years. Um, but we still believe that there's a lot of opportunity down cap. So a lot of our core equity portfolios bias. Uh, a little bit smaller on the blended market cap within that uh, so portfolio. So how do you guys kind of balance, you know, the kind of research necessary to do that kind of mm-hmm. stock picking with trying to keep fees down and, and costs reasonable in a highly competitive business? That is a very, uh, very good question. Uh, it, it, it's difficult. It's challenging. But, you know, we have invested heavily since the 90s in our own independent research. Uh, we have publishing analysts, approximately 14 on the public equity side, uh, and they all cover um, all sectors. And like I said, they're all published. We have forced rankings. We have buy-sell ideas, um, and, uh, and they're all responsible, and we track them. And then those ideas are fed through to our portfolio managers that are there to serve the client. Yeah, I just think it's interesting at a time when many are turning to kind of a basket of ETFs and a diversification strategy. A um, couple of companies, you know, Trimble, we don't talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. That's when you like Permian Resources. Sure. Um, and I think it's interesting as well how you say, you know, every stock might not be the right fit for every client. Sure. Absolutely. Well, one of the, one of the most important things that you need to do as, uh, as a client service individual and professional is to balance the risk with the client. Uh, you know, if you have a risk aversion that's higher with a client than the, than the risk that you put on their portfolio, then oftentimes you um, prompt them to make bad calls at the bad times. And ultimately, we're um, simply acting as an agent and they still have the custody. So, you know, they can override any decisions that we make if they if they get nervous. And so the best thing is to match the the risk appropriately. And did I read that you guys basically have your wealth fully invested in this? You know, people might think, well, doesn't everybody? No, not everybody does that. It's very unique. Absolutely. I mean, we're set up as a C-Corp, which is unique as well. Uh, A lot of them are LLCs, LPs, uh, S-Corps, pass-through entities. Um, we're set up as a C-Corp and have 44 years worth of uh, retained earnings. And we continue to reinvest that, those retained earnings in our own strategies. So uh, even when we introduce a strategy, typically it's already been incubated. So we launched international in 2015 internally, but we didn't even announce uh, or launch the mutual fund until 19. Mm. And we used our own uh, capital in order to uh, test run it and make sure we could go through some cycles before we put That's fascinating. You have some quick thoughts before you go. I got to mm-hmm. ask you about the Fed. I see a Milton Friedman quote here about <laughs> lags and you're, you're singing a little bit different song than a lot of the forecasters lately who are sure. saying the lags are over. The economy is holding up better than expected.
did you sound a little cautious still? I, I am. I am a little cautious. Some of that it's probably looking through into the, you know, the senior loan officer survey, uh, you know, data and showing that you're still going to see a lot of restriction coming forward. Um, we don't believe in kind of the mantra, this time is different. We believe that that's a, a, a cautionary statement. And so we're going to want to uh, recognize the fact that historically 12 to 18 months has been the typical lag uh, before the full um, impact is felt. And so we don't want to get too sanguine uh, too early when we recognize that there's still a little pain ahead. All right, Mason, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Congrats again. Thanks for coming up here, making the trip. It's nice to check in with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Mason King joining us from Luther King Capital Management. And be sure to join CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit on October 12th. We'll have a full slate of discussions about how to navigate this market uncertainty and position clients for the best possible outcomes. Just scan that QR code on your screen or go to cnbcevents.com slash FA to register. Still ahead, the Apple phone launch, watch launch. What else launches underway? Uh, the Apple Watch 9 series has been unveiled. Its features include 18-hour battery life, Siri integration with health data, and a double-tap feature. Still waiting on price. We'll bring you all the continuing headlines as they come in. Don't go anywhere. Dow's at session highs of 178. We're back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Tyler Matheson here, and here is your CNBC News update. Many survivors of Morocco's earthquake slept outside for a fourth night as search and recovery efforts continue there. The death toll now over 2,900, and the number of people injured jumped to more than 5,500, according to state television. The 6.8 magnitude earthquake was the country's deadliest since 1960 and most powerful in over a century. An FDA panel unanimously concluded that a key ingredient in many over-the-counter cold and allergy medications doesn't get rid of nasal nasal congestion. I could have told you that a long time ago. The ingredient in oral medicines, including Sudafed PE and Vicsinex, are said to be ineffective because when taken orally, only a very small amount of the drug reaches the nose to relieve congestion. And astronaut Frank Rubio now holds the record for the longest U.S. space flight. Rubio arrived at the International Space Station last September, expecting to stay for six months. But a coolant leak prolonged his stay. The astronaut beat the previous 355-day record held by astronaut Mark Vandehei. He is set to return to Earth at the end of this month. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you, and I will see you soon. Coming up with shares on pace for their worst month since December, we'll get back out to Cupertino for the latest from Apple's big event. The shares are still down, but they're a little bit off session lows, down 1%. Will the latest iPhone be dazzling enough to justify higher prices and drive revenue growth in the maturing smartphone market? Platformers Casey Newton weighs in next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're getting some headlines and some pricing from Apple's product launch event out in Cupertino. Steve Kovac here to bring us the news. Hi, Steve. 
Hey, Kelly. Yeah, so the new watches are here. This is the Apple Watch Series 9. Apple just announcing that along with a new version of the Ultra Watch. That's the uh, more expensive, more advanced version. So the Series 9, not a ton of changes here, Kelly. It starts at $399, goes on sale September 22nd. Uh, the, most of the advances here are under the hood. There's a new processor in there that Apple says can do more of uh, Siri capabilities and artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, capabilities on, under the hood on the device, meaning you don't have to connect to the internet to use Siri and things like that. They're also introducing a new gesture for the Apple Watch. They're calling it, you could double tap your finger like this, uh, uh, your fingers with your uh, index finger with your thumb, that is, and it can actually select things on the watch without you having to either use that little dial on the side or touch the screen itself. And also just now happening, Kelly, they're showing off the new iPhones. It looks like the, they're starting off with the base model of these new iPhones. Uh, and those phones are getting uh, that dynamic island that they call, that's that cutout that they introduced last year on the pro line of the iPhones. This time it's coming to the, the regular series of the iPhones. Uh, so cut out there, no more notch at the top. Instead, you're gonna see a little cutout called uh, the dynamic island that gives you a bunch of info, like what song you're playing and things like that. So the theme here is app over the last couple of years, Apple taking the pro features from the year before and, and bringing that down to the base level iPhones. Kelly, we'll have more um, as they announce it. And so, see, I know the pricing is whatever, but let's go back to this double tap, which is not a tap at all. And maybe we can show sure. that B-roll again, because what is really happening, I've got a watch, an older one, is, is they're saying, I, don't, I can just do this with my fingers, and I don't have to, t and, exactly. and it senses, like yeah, so, which is, okay, if you're running yes. and you want to start or stop the watch and you don't have, you know, as soon as my sleeve's covering it or I'm wearing a jacket and my thumb through the loop and I got to undo the jacket to, but I've never, ever seen a, a physical device so far where we could trigger its response without actually touching it and we could just move some, some part of our body, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and Apple was really crediting that new chip on the inside. So again, if you're if your hands full, you're cooking for your kids, you get a phone call, you want to answer it or, or uh, send it away, you just do that little double tap gesture on the same uh, hand that you have the watch on and it'll recognize that because of all these new advances that they say are possible with this new processor. So if you want that feature, Kelly, you're going to have to upgrade. Well, and I'll have to pay up. I mean, did, did that just show that the old, whatever they're calling it, starts at $799? I mean, we're approaching yeah, iPhone level so pricing here. Yeah, and that's the same price as last year, too. So this Ultra, you know, huge battery life, bigger screen. You can go scuba diving with it. This is not for your average, you know, um, Apple Watch user. Uh, they're, they're really catering it towards, like, those Garmin users who are really obsessed with more advanced GPS and things like that. They're going after that high end of the, you know, the fitness market as opposed to what you can get from, like, the iPhone SE on the way other end for just $249. So there's a broad range there, Kelly. And forgive me, did you mention the iPhone pricing? We have not seen an iPhone pricing yet. They are currently announcing, going through the features right now. They usually wait to the end to do pricing. But the Apple Watches are going to be available on the 22nd. I'm going to guess that's going to be the same for the iPhones too, Kelly. Okay, great. We'll come back in a moment, Steve. Thank you. Let's get some reaction now you from Platformer Editor and CNBC contributor Casey Newton. Kim Forrest of Boca Capital is also still with us. Casey, what do you think so far? Well, so far, I would say the event is proceeding as expected. Some nice little incremental upgrades to the watch, and I think some fairly incremental upgrades are coming to the phone. The big question, as you point out, is 
how much are these things going to cost, particularly the premium models, and how much new revenue can that drive for Apple? And what else? I, I mean, we've seen, Casey, obviously Apple shares often trade lower after a product launch. It's coming off three quarters of year-on-year revenue declines. It's doing everything it can to boost EPS by doing buybacks. And, you know, it's it's garnering comparisons with IBM. You know, where, do, where does it go from here? Are, are you excited about the Vision Pro? That's the only bullish narrative I can find, as I mentioned from uh, investor Vitaly Castanelson, bullish on the Vision Pro. And uh, maybe that's where we're going. You know, I am bullish on the Vision Pro, at least over the long run, right? Like, I think that there's a good chance that version 1.0 is really only for a, a small number of early adopters. But when you think about the war chest that Apple has and the competitive pressure it's under to invent that next generation platform, my expectation is this is going to be something that they are really patient with. And look, if they can essentially give you an IMAX screen that you can throw in your backpack and take with you wherever you're traveling, I think there are going to be a lot of really interesting uses for something like that. And Kim, what would you add as someone who's, you know, we talked earlier this hour, uh, do I describe you as bullish on the shares, you know, or at least, um, you know, kind of, Maybe you can find the right adjective. I'm I'm warmly favorable, you know, not like super excited about it. But I will say this. we th- Whenever I first saw the watch, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing. Like, why would we ever need a watch with a phone? And yet, apparently we do, right? I am the most reluctant user of Apple products because of my software engineering bias that they're overpriced and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know, they, they hooked me. I like the, the phone. I like the watch. And I think the AR stuff is going to allow them to reach a whole lot more people in the world and give you another reason to have more mobile computing. And I don't think that there's a limit to the appetite on l- mobile computing. And this is just a new way to get you information when you're out in the world. And let's see if this works. Again, this is a company that innovates in kind of unknown ways. And I'm willing to take a shot on them. I don't know, Casey, if they've kind of gotten to this part of the presentation yet, but they are reportedly also selling made in India iPhones on launch day for the first time. And that feels really significant, almost more uh, to Washington, uh, maybe than to to anybody else or or, uh, to India as well, obviously. Sure. And obviously, India could be uh, a huge growth market. And that is a country whose government really wants to see things being made within the country. But of course, Apple itself is under a ton of pressure to diversify that supply chain, particularly at a time when the Chinese government is now saying that iPhones are going to be uh, banned uh, for government workers. So lots of good reasons for Apple to start making iPhones somewhere else. And what about the potential, Casey, for those sales to to go somewhere else? You know, do you really think they're going to be under pressure? I think China's about 20 percent of sales. Yeah, I mean, you know, my uh, my my distant understanding is that iPhones have been a real status symbol in China and also that the Chinese government is proud that iPhones are manufactured in China because uh, it shows that the most premium smartphones in the world, uh, some that are the most difficult to manufacture, are made in China. So, I, I, you know, my understanding is that, that that is a point of national pride. But, you know, uh, Apple will not be the first company to get caught in the sort of grinding gears of geopolitics here. And I think we should just expect a lot of change there uh, over the next few years. All right. Very exciting times. 
Uh, let's get over to Dom Chu for some breaking news now. Dom, what's happening? Uh, we're looking at the oil and gas industry, specifically British Petroleum, BP. Uh, this is coming from headlines from the Financial Times that BP chief executive Bernard Looney is set to step down, resign as CEO. He's been in place as CEO since uh, 2020, uh, put in there in place really to kind of help guide BP through an energy transition phase to turn it more from an oil and gas company into a diversified, integrated energy company. Uh, this is, a, again, a source report citing people familiar with that decision for Bernard Looney to stand down. We have reached out to BP for a comment, any kind of clarification or context around the move. We have not heard back. We will get back to you when we do hear something. But BP shares were a little bit volatile over the course of the last 15 minutes or so, as you can see there by the chart. They were already up ahead of that because of the rise in oil and gas prices. So we'll keep an eye on those particular moves there. But BP shares certainly a little volatile in afternoon trading on these Bernard Looney headlines. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, a big move. Dom, thank you, our Dom Chu. Still ahead, speaking of energy, one ETF is already back to pre-pandemic levels, plus a package to deal and a Bitcoin bifurcation. It's all coming up in today's Movers. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow was up 182 a moment ago, but we're falling back off that level. Still up 100 points, though, and well off the declines we saw earlier on. Uh, the S&P, meanwhile, is down 12 points today, and the Nasdaq is underperforming with a two-thirds percent drop as it's weighed down by some tech components like Oracle and Adobe in particular. Apple shares lower, but of course, that's uh, Dow is still able to buck that and stay positive. Energy is helping. That's the best performing sector today. Crude back near that 90 level. 89, you can see, for WTI on a 2 percent pop here. We haven't seen these levels since November. And the Vanek Oil Services ETF, the OIH, is at its highest level since April of 2019, 363 with a 2.5% pop today. We've also got a merger in the packaging business, which has been under some pressure post-pandemic. Dublin-based packaging group Smurfit Kappa is announcing it's combining with U.S. peer Westrock, forming what will be one of the largest packaging companies in the world. Smurfit investors will own over just over half of the new company, get one new share. Westrock shareholders will get a new share and five bucks cash. Uh, Westrock shares are up three and a half percent, but Smurf at Kappa is down nearly 10 percent on this news. And another check on Bitcoin, which traded below $25,000 yesterday, back above 26K today. But look at the comp with Coinbase. Mizuho's Dan Dollar warning again today. There's a stark and likely unprecedented bifurcation forming between Bitcoin prices and Coinbase trading volumes. He's been bearish on coin for some time as retail interest in trading crypto has been lackluster. But both Bitcoin and Coinbase are rebounding today. Coming up, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas named Tesla a top pick yesterday, saying its valuation could soar thanks to its supercomputer dojo. That sent Tesla shares soaring 10%, but another firm expects growing pains ahead. We'll talk to the analyst behind that call next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Tesla giving some back today after a big boost yesterday on a very bullish note from Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas. RBC also staying positive, writing in a note today that Tesla should be able to capitalize on IRA tax credits more than any other automaker. Shares are down nearly 2% this afternoon. But Needham says not so fast. They're seeing some profit margin pressures ahead and say fully self-driving cars are still a ways off. The firm lowered their 2025 Tesla earnings estimates to 15 percent below consensus. And joining me now, the analyst behind the note, Chris Pierce. He covers EV names at Needham. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
Would you, would you describe yourself, just to set the scene here, as a Tesla bear, or is this more of a tactical call? Um, I would say more tactical than not. I do think Tesla deserves a premium multiple. I think Tesla is going to sell a lot of EVs in the next few years and beyond, but I just struggle to, given the price cuts we're seeing, the price cuts in FSD for the first time, I just looked at consensus estimates for margin improvement in 24 and uh, you know, looking at raw material inputs, looking at the potential for future price cuts, looking at legacy mass market operating margins. I just struggle to see those uh, Tesla being able to meet those expectations. Yeah. I mean, I look at what's coming out of China and I would be I would be really worried if they do to EVs what they did to other consumer products. There could be a lot more downside ahead, couldn't there? Yeah, I think we're already seeing that at the high end. I mean, Tesla's cut prices for the Model S and Model X, you know, by a decent amount this year. I did some channel checks at local Mercedes-Benz dealerships. I live in Northern California. We're already seeing, you know, at the high end, Mercedes dealerships in Northern California, over 50% of their deliveries this summer have been EVs. And we're seeing similar stats and similar direction in Southern California. So, you know, what's going to happen as we see competition at the mid and lower end you know, we're going to see Tesla potentially have to take further price cuts to stay competitive and to keep these factories humming and get cars on the road. So I just struggle to see margins moving back at the pace that consensus expects them to, especially next year. Yeah, the headline of your note is lower for longer, which all of our viewers will appreciate is a little bit of a nod to what we've been saying uh, opposite about the Fed. So I, I don't know if you gave uh, Adam's note a read yesterday on Dojo. Just kind of put that in context. As you say, they just cut the price of full self-driving. So, you know, how big a, a market and an opportunity do you think they really have? I didn't read the note. I, I think we're actually making similar calls. He's saying what I... Not to put words in his mouth, but he's saying there is this out-year goodness around what can happen if they put all these pieces together. We don't have a lot of proof points that they can put those pieces together. That feeds into why they would cut the price of false self-driving. They need to get more vehicles on the road with this package so they can do more video learning to kind of, as a strategy shift from a code-based program to kind of a video capture program. So they need to cut the price of full self-driving to get more cars on the road to gather more data. But he's saying this goodness might not be recognized in the stock in the longer term. I'm saying this bumpiness in the short term is not being recognized in the stock versus, you know, what might happen if you look at consensus estimates. So, you know, he's just taking a longer term view and saying people aren't focusing on X. That may happen. But on the road to X, people aren't focusing on Y. I should have reversed those letters since Y comes before X in the alphabet. But the road (laughs) to get there is going to be choppier than I think most people expect. Is it V? What comes before X? Okay, I should have just said they're, A. They're telling yes. me. <laughs> Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's a great note. I encourage everyone to read it. We appreciate your time, Chris Pierce. And before we go, let's get Steve Kovac with some pricing headlines on the iPhone. Steve? Hey, Kelly. Yes, yeah, so the iPhone 15 is going to be priced the same as last year. This is the regular model, $799 for the base model, and then starting at $899 for the plus model. That's the one with the bigger screen. Now, these are not the models we are uh thinking there might be a price increase on. They just announced the iPhone 15 Pro model, though, uh, still going over the features of that, but they did show off this new titanium casing for the Pro model. So hopefully in the next few minutes here, we'll see what that's priced at and the launch dates for both I of these I think the colors. question is whether that's going to be $999 or $1,099, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we'll, get, exact, we'll get you the big exactly reveal right. in a moment, Steve. Thank you, our Steve Kovac. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.